Hi, everybody. Welcome to HMH's Future of Transportation podcast. I'm John Halpin, and on this show, hopefully you know this by now, we host a regular series of chats with experts in the transportation industry. Joining me today is Jeff Allen, Executive Director of Forth. Jeff, thanks a lot for joining me today. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, it's great to be here. All right, so Forth's mission is, quote, to accelerate the use of smart transportation to move people and goods in a more efficient, cleaner, and equitable way. Can you explain that a little bit and, and let everyone know how you do it? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? Well, really, we're focused on, you, when I say smart transportation, you know, we're talking about what the insider folks might call ACEs or CASE, right? So it's connected, autonomous, shared, and electric, with a heavy emphasis on electric. But part of our approach to it that's different, too, is that it's not just about the technology and about building the industry and the economic opportunities. It's also about the environmental opportunities to reduce climate change, reduce air pollution, improve public health. And it's about the opportunities to promote equity, to really address some of the historic systemic wrongs that have been done um, with our transportation investments and our transportation policies in mm -hmm. communities of color and frontline communities. So we try and address all three of those in our work and our work is also pretty diverse. So we um, do some policy advocacy and lobbying for sound regulations legislation. We also do a lot of um, demonstration and pilot projects and direct consumer engagement programs where we're really out there trying to figure out how to make this work in the wild, in the real world. Uh, right. And we do a lot of um, what I would call being the connective tissue in the industry, putting on conferences, webinars, uh, we have a really active newsletter, social media feeds, really trying to help translate, bring the different stakeholders in this space um, together. And, um, you know, we put all those pieces together. It's, uh, it's a pretty diverse portfolio. All right. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I told you before we started recording, I mentioned that I, I was at your roadmap, roadmap conference recently and got to see a little, you know, not behind the curtain because it was public, but it's more, learning more about what you do and, and the people you're involved with. And it was uh, really, really interesting. Before we talk a little more about Forth, I want to ask about you. You've been involved. Uh, I was on your LinkedIn profile and you've been involved with environmentally focused work for, for your entire career. Uh, you know, it, it was interesting. I looked at what you did with Forth and then I went back further and further and further. And you've been doing this. I don't want to, you know, say you've been doing it for a long time. You and I look like we're about the same age, but um, you have been doing it for a long time. How did you get involved? How did you get started in, in, in environmentally focused work? Yeah, it's a, that's a fun question. I mean, if I go way back, I actually started college thinking I was going to be a poet of all things. So it's been an evolution. Uh, but I got really, you know, I grew up fishing and camping and doing those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And you know, first job out of college, went off and did some environmental policy work. I was going to be an environmental lawyer. Um, worked with a bunch of environmental lawyers who thankfully talked me out of that um, because, as they said, if you're a really great environmental lawyer, you're going to be the world's biggest expert on the tiniest possible piece of the law. <laughs> and that didn't really appeal to me. I wanted the opposite, right? I wanted to know a little bit about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of what I've been able to do in my career, right? So I did a lot of work early on in environmental policy and lobbying advocacy work, mostly in environmental nonprofits. And, you know, really that's all about how do you get 
companies to make different kinds of products and different kinds of services and people to buy them. And you can do that with carrots. You can do that with sticks. Um, increasingly, as I got into it, I found the really interesting work to me was how do you actually make that work? So you can pass a mandate that says you have to do X. Uh, you can pass a tax that says it's really expensive to do Y. But the really interesting part is how do you actually create a market for whatever it is, whether it's uh, um, you know digital thermometers instead of mercury containing thermometers, electric cars instead of gas cars. Um, <clears throat> one of my ventures uh, early on was you know how do you get people to um, not be cremated, not to have their fillings taken out before they're cremated so you don't put mercury <laughs> in the air. It's all these little decisions and business models that need to be tweaked is where it gets really interesting. The other thing I realized is, uh, well, just a couple of things. One is that for me, it's not just about the environment. It's really that I have a low tolerance for waste. Yep. And that's true whether we're wasting natural resources, whether we're wasting money, or whether we're wasting people, frankly, an opportunity. And that I was really just as passionate about how do you help people realize their potential as I was about protecting the environment. It all matters. Um, and then the other thing I figured out is that I was really interested in how do you build organizations to do this work that people might actually want to work in. Uh, I worked in a lot of nonprofits where we did great work and it was a horrible working environment. <laughs> um, so hopefully <clears throat> I'm trying to build a little bit of a different model here. Okay. Um, so you're, one of the things on your website says you're helping companies and communities evolve to a more sustainable future. What's the, uh, what's the more forward-thinking ally or the more helpful ally generally, the, the company or the community? <laughs> oh, that's a loaded question. Um, no, I would say it, uh, it, it, not to cop out, but it really depends. You know, we've mm -hmm. seen leaders in, in all sectors. It depends on the issue. It depends on the particular leadership in that organization, whether it's a city government, uh, uh, a company government, an NGO. Um, I think the big difference is what are the strengths and weaknesses and constraints those different organizations operate under? Um, so for example, companies tend to be very nimble, fairly well-resourced, but very narrow in what their focus is, right? They wanna sell their widget. Um, so in the electric vehicle space, if I'm a car company, if you're not going to buy my electric car, I want you to buy one of my other gas cars, right? right. I don't want to sell you somebody else's electric car. Um, you know, communities tend to be a little bit less nimble, but fairly nimble and have really broad set of interests, right? They don't really tend to isolate if you're a community-based organization or a local government. You know, you don't, you don't separate your economic development goals from your environmental goals all that much. They're kind of all important. Um, but uh, they tend to lack information and resources. Um, government in general tends to have the resources but move really slowly. Okay. And there's reasons for that. We've kind of designed them to move slowly, right? Um, so a lot of the work we do is bringing all those stakeholders together and saying, okay, everybody wants this outcome. What can we all contribute to helping make that outcome possible? So what are the things that the companies can do 
um, that only they can do? What are the things that government can do, but only government can do? You know, how do we kind of bring all those folks together? And often forth is the owner of the vision. So we try and keep people focused on, here's the outcome we're trying to get to. Let's not get too bogged down in, you know, whether the, who's going to benefit the most or, you know, some of the specific tactics, let's stay focused on the vision and figure out how do we all get there together. Okay. So actually that leads into my next question. Um, your role, basically you, you fourth operates as a facilitator in a lot of ways. Is there a real world example of what you just talked about? Can you talk about it? You know, how you sort of brought parties together to, to maybe paint a picture of, of how you do this? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I can think of a couple right off the bat. Um, one I, I kind of referenced, especially early on, you know, when, when most car companies had one electric car model and they weren't making a lot of them, um, they wanted to sell their car. But if you weren't going to buy their electric car, they wanted you to buy their gas car. Utilities wanted to see more electric cars sold, but they had to be brand neutral. They had some other constraints. Um, they're interested in when and how people charge. They have regulations they have to deal with. Um, charging companies want to build the market, but they mostly want to sell their own charging equipment. Um, mm -hmm. kind of like the car companies, you know, cities want to see this happen, but aren't clear what their role is. Um, generally don't want to spend any money. <laughs> um, and so one of the things we did early on, this is going back way back to, you know, five, 10 years is figure out how do we bring those folks together to help increase consumer awareness and adoption of electric vehicles? Um, what does everybody contribute? And just to cut the story short, one of the things that came out of that was our EV showroom in downtown Portland. So it's the first brand neutral EV showroom in the country, uh, kind of like the old utility kitchen of the future exhibits where you can see all the different cars, you could test drive cars, we had charging equipment from several different manufacturers that you could play around with. We had our staff who were the brand neutral experts, mm -hmm. um, legally couldn't sell you a car even if we wanted to, but we can talk about pros and cons and what's available and then refer you to a dealer. And that has continued to evolve as the market has matured. We're actually about to roll out a mobile version of that showroom in a trailer that's gonna travel around the region doing pop-up events in nice. community. Um, and really excited to have that towed by an all electric truck, um, which wasn't on the market you know, until recently. So that's continued to evolve, but that's, that's one example, uh, maybe a more recent one that's really live right now is electric school buses, where again, there's a lot of excitement about protecting kids from unhealthy diesel exhaust in traditional buses at the same time. School district mostly just wants safe, cheap transportation for students. Right. Um, and they're under a lot of, every school district in the country is short on money. Um, electric school buses are more expensive right now to purchase. You've got the utility that's interested in that load from charging the buses and the potential to use those batteries when they're not being used to transport kids. Mm -hmm. And you've got communities that are interested in not just the air quality benefits and the health benefits to their kids, but the idea of, oh, if we have some of these buses, that could be a resilience resource. If there's a storm, we could use, and the power goes out, we could use that to charge our cell phones. If there's a 118 degree day in Portland, like there was recently, and we need a cooling center, 
You could run those as portable cooling centers. How do we, so we have a project going right now where we're bringing community members and stakeholders together to say, how do we maximize and monetize all those benefits to make this transformation happen? Because if we just wait until the buses reach operating cost parity with diesel buses, we're going to be waiting way too long. Right. Okay. Um, you, you, you Going back to something you said earlier, you were talking about carrots and sticks. And w- with the private companies, like l- let's say the, e- the car makers now, we're at the point now, like I, I, part of me has always been with, with any uh, advancements like this, let's say just let's say electric vehicles, like it's not going to work until the people making the cars can make money. Ultimately, it's not going to work. But now the cost of entry for consumers is changing. So now before it was almost, it was almost always a stick <laughs> with the car companies. And now, right now the carrots here, now they're looking and they're going, Hey, now, wait a minute, we can really make this work now. And it's, it's almost like a, I mean, is it six months ago? I don't know when it was the Super Bowl. The, when, when was the tipping point here? When did the switch flip? Well, and you know, I think it's arguable whether we're quite there yet, to be honest. Okay. Um, I think it's a combination. It's always a combination of carrots and sticks, right? So um, yes, we had policies like the zero emission vehicle mandate that told companies they had to produce a certain percentage of vehicles. Um, we also had some federal tax credits to help provide some carrots. Uh, some states like Oregon have their own rebates to help provide some carrots. Um, we've seen more of the regulatory sticks coming recently with states cranking up their requirements. And with the new administration, there's going to be tighter national uh, regulations on vehicles. But we're also seeing the cost of producing those electric vehicles coming way down, right? Battery costs are declining, all those system costs. So it's interesting because I think a lot of the media has focused on when do we hit price parity with Mm -hmm. vehicles? When is the upfront purchase price of an electric vehicle the same as a gas vehicle? It's already the total cost of ownership is lower in most cases because they're so cheap to operate, but people just look at the sticker price, right? Yep. But I think the really interesting question is when do we hit profit parity, right? So when can a car company make as much money selling you an electric car as they make selling you an SUV that runs on gasoline? We're not there yet. So I think that will be the real tipping point. And we're going to get there soon. Um, I don't know if that's two years, five years, 10 years, but but it's coming. And um, I think we are going to start to see this whole trend accelerate as we get closer to that. Um, you know, one of the, the speaking specific vehicles in the roadmap, roadmap conference that we talked about, there was a panel and I don't remember which one it was. And the panelists were asked, what was, what's the biggest story in this industry this year? And I think it was unanimous that they said uh, the Ford F-150 Lightning that they just lost because not only is the sticker price lower and, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of in the ballpark of, of the gas powered F-150. Um, and as you would say, you know, the cost of ownership is probably lower, but it can also, it doesn't just charge, it can charge other things. You can take it camping and it can charge your stove and you can take it to a work site and it can charge your tools and it can charge your house if the power goes out. I mean, that's like, that was a huge game changer, wasn't it? Yeah, I've been saying this for a while and, um, 
that and as a guy who's owned a couple of trucks myself um, and, and this whole notion of vehicle to grid or vehicle to home has been something that people who are insiders in this space have been excited about for a long time, but it sounds kind of wonky. Mm -hmm. uh, and from a, from a rational perspective, if you're like an electric utility, you'd say passenger cars doing this, you know, making use of that battery. What the, what the, what the inside folks are really excited about is every vehicle that's plugged in is, an energy storage device and you can control when the power goes in potentially you can take some power out so you have all these little shock absorbers or batteries across the system that allow you to integrate all that renewable energy that isn't running 24 7 right right that's not what car buyers care about right if i'm buying mm -hmm. a car i'm buying a car right what i'm excited about and you hit it on the head the killer app is when the power goes out can i run my house on this thing yeah. Or if I'm out in the woods camping, can I run my radio? Can I charge my phone? Can I, um, if I'm at the job site, can I run my power drill off of it? And mm -hmm. the rational insider people have been saying, well, nobody's, you know, the number of times where you're actually going to run your house off your car is really small. To which my response has been the average vehicle owner who has four wheel drive uses it about, I think the statistic I saw was two miles a year. Yeah. Right. You never use four wheel drive and yet millions of people pay extra for four wheel drive and pay the gas efficiency penalty for four wheel drive because they want to know that they could if they ever wanted to, and it makes them feel okay. better. So I think it's the same kind of thing. People are going to love the idea that they could run their house off of their vehicle, even if they never do it. I right. think people will spend thousands more to get a vehicle knowing they can do that. But but the, the work the work and camping things that we talked about, like, those are real practical, cool benefits that people will use. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. And, and again, I think this is the first, the F-150 is a huge deal for a bunch of reasons, right? I mean, obviously the, the, the best-selling vehicle on the planet so you don't mess with that unless you're serious. Right. Um, and given that Ford is also messing with the Mustang, which again, one of its signature brands. Um, but second of all, the pickup truck has been missing, right? There have not been electric trucks or a lot of electric SUVs. And that's what most people in the US buy. Um, and then third, as you say, this really marketing the potential to use it as a mobile power plant uh, mm -hmm. is also a game changer. And I, I think particularly for that truck, people will use that feature a lot. I don't know how many people are going to fill the frunk with uh, shrimp <laughs> like they did in one of the promotions, but I, I think running power tools at a work site, running equipment when you're camping, um, that kind of thing for sure. Yeah. I love the word frunk, by the way. That's just yeah. fun to say. <laughs> it is. Um, so your website says that you advance electric smart and shared mobility is shared. Is it just, I mean, is, is it an oversimplification say Uber and Lyft or are we talking scooters or um, yeah, how do you get involved in that side of things? Yeah, all of the above. So um, I should have clarified at the beginning, you know, we are a trade association and advocate mm -hmm. for advanced mobility. So we have members that include Uber, Lyft, scooter companies, um, 
but shared mobility, the way I would put it is basically anything that's about making more efficient use of a vehicle, whatever kind of vehicle it may be. And if you think about it, you know, cars are for most of us our second most expensive possession. And they are incredibly poorly used, right? The average car is driven a couple hours a day, so less than 10% of the time. The average occupancy in the US is about, it's a little under 1.1 people. Yep. Um, So if it's a five passenger vehicle, you're using about maybe 20% of the capacity. So you're talking about like a 2% capacity factor, right? 2% of the capacity of the vehicle is being used. And it's the second most expensive thing you own. So if you can get it used more, you bring the price way down. Um, And so there's huge economic advantages. And obviously there's huge environmental advantages too, because you're not manufacturing a bunch of two-ton vehicles that sit around and don't get used until they rust away and get scrapped. Um, So it includes things like Uber and Lyft and ride hailing. It includes um, things like bike share, scooter share, um, car share of all different kinds and forms, you know, everything from services like Car2Go that are, um, you know, uh, on demand to things that are more like Airbnb for your car, where I can like rent my Turo. personal Turo, that one? Turo is one, get around is another. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. And we're going to see more and more innovation in this space, just like we have seen the rise of that kind of shared economy with Airbnb and VRBO for for homes, but all kinds of things. You know, there are services that'll let you rent out your bicycle, your skateboard, your skis. Um, I just saw there was one that just launched that will let you rent your pool. If your house has a pool, you can rent it out to people for a few hours. Yeah. (laughs) So um, there's a lot of potential there. And that's something that we're pretty excited about. So yeah, we work with Uber and Lyft to help more of their drivers electrify um, and do it in a way that makes the drivers better off economically. We work with uh, scooter companies. In fact, we're we're incubating a nonprofit that operates bike sharing for smaller mm-hmm. communities um, where it's not as profitable for the big folks to come in. Right. Um, so yeah, we're pretty active there. Okay. Yeah, I was actually talking one of the previous episodes was we talked to uh, a guy who's a futurist and he talked about, you know, what if you're, he said, imagine going, we were talking about crowded urban places and he basically talked about the idea of what if, you know, what if you drive your car to dinner and you go in the restaurant and when, when the car is autonomous, it can act as an Uber on its own while you're eating dinner and then you can have it and go home and it's kind of, you think about that, you go, whoa, but it makes sense when, you know, when the technology works out, you're going to be able to you want to maximize use. And I think what you just said rung a bell with me because I have this Buick Enclave, which is basically a minivan because I got it when we, because we have a couple of kids and I drive it by myself most of the time. So it's this mammoth, it's a yacht <laughs> driving down the road and there's no one in it. Yeah. And we tend to buy vehicles for the most extreme use case, right? And then we're stuck with yeah. them for everything else. The, the vision here that again is sort of the insider uh, geek speak is mobility as a service. But the way to think about it, and we're, we're kind of halfway there already, or we were pre-pandemic, is that basically your phone becomes your mobility device, right? So when you walk out the front door, every time you need to go somewhere, you can use your phone to summon an Uber or a Lyft or a car, um, to access a shared bicycle, to get on a bus, to get on a train, 
you know, to call a autonomous electric helicopter in a few years, those are coming too. So whatever your mobility, you know, uh, choice might be, every trip you can make that choice and you can right size it. So if you need a car, great, you need a car, but do you need a two-seater two car to go get a latte or do you need that minivan to take the family camping? You know, the most efficient thing economically ultimately would be get to a point where every trip you can optimize uh, how you're going to make that trip. Okay. So we've talked a lot about e-mobility. We've talked about the F-150 Lightning. We've talked about a lot of things. What else is trending in e-mobility? What else is interesting to you right now? Yeah. I mean, I mentioned um, it's just a real explosion of electrification in new parts of the mobility ecosystem. So I mentioned school buses, transit buses have been coming for a while. Um, big long haul class eight trucks are going electric. Daimler trucks here in town are sell is selling those already as is Volvo. Uh, we're doing another project with electric tractors uh, for agricultural use. We're seeing planes, boats. So there's a lot of innovation there with different kinds of vehicles. Um, you know, on a very different note, one of the things we haven't talked about that's definitely trending is uh, a much bigger focus on equity, especially in the post-George mm -hmm. Floyd era where people, and post-COVID era, where people are saying, great, you know, we want clean mobility, we want to deal with climate change, um, you know, we, we want to spend less money importing oil, and we also want to know how is this going to create jobs especially for historically underserved communities. How is this mobility technology going to benefit us? Is mm -hmm. this, you know, or is this just about Tesla's for rich people in Silicon Valley, <laughs> right. you know? Um, and so there's a lot more focus on that workforce development, on mobility in communities, on, you know, how do you use the technology to meet community needs rather than the other way around? Um, so we're seeing a, a, a real push there. Okay. There's, those are a couple. There's, there's a lot more happening. Obviously, I guess the last thing I would say is um, a lot of attention on Washington D.C. All of a sudden, that hasn't been yeah. there for the last few years. Um, so, speaking of that, sorry. So, um, the infrastructure bill, not law yet. We, when you saw the details, were you happy? Was it ambitious enough? Uh, you know, because there's a lot of ways to look at that. Some people would say, oh, why are we spending any money? And a lot of people, other people say, you know, wow, this isn't enough. And and I wonder where you stood on that. Yeah, well, it, it's definitely not enough um, if what you want is to. So, yeah, you can look at it as glass as half glass is half, half empty or half full. I would say um, and I think whatever happens with the infrastructure bill. We're going to see more investment from this administration. We're going to see more support from this administration, and that's definitely helpful. I think the infrastructure bill is a good first step. You know, it, it would mark the first time that the federal government has really put its money on the table to invest in charging infrastructure, for example. But if if your goal is we want to electrify the vehicle fleet in the next you know, 10, 15 years get to the point where all new vehicles sold are electric, which is where we need to go if we're serious about climate change. It doesn't get us there. Uh, yeah. If your goal is we don't want to give over the automotive industry to China and to Europe, um, it doesn't get us there. So, you know, it's a good first step, I think, is the, is the easy thing to say. 
um, mm -hmm. but it needs to not be the last step. And I'm hoping, I think we're all hoping that it will pass and that we will also see a lot more investment through the budget reconciliation process and then hopefully going forward over the next few years as well. This is not a one and done uh, kind of a deal. Okay. So in this space that we're talking about, where are we on the innovation curve? Like, are we, are we really, I mean, a scale of one to 10 where one's kind of like, you know, yeah, we really, you know, we're, we're stalling and, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the criteria are, but um, how, how far along are we in, in this space or, or is there a lot more to come that we're not thinking about yet? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think, I think you really have to break down into the different subsectors within transportation. So if you start with electric cars, which are definitely the furthest ahead, right? Mm -hmm. Even there, I would say we're not past a five on that 10 point scale, right? I mean, this, the, the polling that I look at, for example, says, and, and what's interesting about it is, it's also very variable across the country. So if you're in Oregon, California, Washington, Colorado, some of the East Coast states, a few other islands, interesting places like uh, Columbus, Ohio, or Atlanta, Georgia. If you're in some of these markets, um, you've probably seen an electric car. You probably know a little bit about them. If you are in Missouri, we're doing some work in St. Louis. I think until our project was there, you know, that's it. You don't see them, you don't know about mm -hmm. them. They haven't really been for sale or available. Um, and even in the states where they are fairly common and you're getting in California now, some areas where there's five, 10, 15% of new cars sold are electric. But statewide, even in California, uh, a large percentage of people still have no idea that electric vehicles are a thing you can buy today. Um, right. They still don't know how they work. They still don't understand how you charge them. Um, there was a survey I love to cite, it's a year or two old now, but a survey in Britain said 40% of the people they interviewed were afraid that if you ran your electric car through a car wash, it would electrocute you. Right? So there's some major, spoiler alert, it won't, uh, yeah. but there's some major misperceptions and lack of information still even in those markets. So I, th I, I think even electric cars, you can't say it's much above a five. And then if you look at some of these other segments, like charging is a little behind that. Uh, heavy duty vehicles like electric trucks and transit buses are a little behind that. School buses are a little behind that. Tractors are probably still at a one, right? So the electric tractors we're working with are very, um, they're not prototypes, but they're not a lot past prototypes. Um, okay. So it's pretty early days still. So, um you were talking about the geography of this and charging power, like the amount of miles you can get on a charge matters to people who aren't in cities or, or places with a, with a good, you know, the, the networks of chargers are still growing. Right. So, the, I mean, that, that's a big, like they uh, can, I don't want to say can't, but it's more difficult to be an EV owner in a, in a more isolated setting. Right. Well, I think it gets back to the awareness and the marketing. So if you look at people who actually own electric vehicles, mm -hmm. they tend to not be nearly as worried about that as people who okay. don't. 
Um, and the reason for that, if you dig into it, it, makes sense. Most Americans, no matter where you live, you don't drive more than 20 or 30 miles a day. Fair. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, you're always, again, you're always planning for that extreme use case of what if I wake up in the morning and I want to drive from Portland to Las Vegas? <laughs> How often do you really do that? Never. But that's what people think about. But typically, people drive 20 or 30 miles a day, and any electric car on the market will do that for you without ever mm-hmm. having to use a public charger. Um, yep. So where it becomes more important is, first of all, as part of the building the comfort level um, for consumers, kind of the awareness, that kind of thing. Second of all, yeah, people want to be able to take longer trips in their car, right? It's like, yes, if you have two cars, you can use the other, the gas car for long trips, or you can always rent a car, but people don't want to have to do that, right? Right. And and particularly for the intermediate trips. So I don't go from Portland to Vegas, but I go from Portland to Seattle, or I go from Portland to Eugene, um, and I may need a charge along the way there, particularly those fast chargers. Um, and then it's use cases like uh, driving for Uber and Lyft. You absolutely have to have really common, affordable, public fast charging to make that work. Um, so I think I think the next stage of this conversation needs to be about not we need more charging, but really specifically what kind of charging, where, for what use cases, right? We need okay. fast charging. We need um, to figure out how do you provide charging to people who live in apartment buildings and don't just have an outlet they can easily plug into. We need charging at work because um, it's like having a nice bike rack at work. If you can charge at work, you're six times more likely to buy an electric car. Um, so specific use cases like that that we need to dig into. Okay. Yeah, I actually, I don't know who I was talking about this, but I mean, some of the charger companies literally market to uh, shopping centers, apartment buildings, hotels, things like that, right? Because they those places need these now. You know, it's 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 becoming less of an option and more of a must-have, right? Yeah, well, I think the problem, the challenge is still that most of those places uh, don't know that they need them or don't think that they need them and okay. don't understand what their choices are. Um, for example, we work a lot with employers to say, look, 20 years ago, you put in a bike rack. 10 years ago, you put in lockers and showers. That's great. Next thing you need to do is provide EV charging. If you're going to be a technology forward, progressive employer who supports clean commuting, this is what you need to do. And it's really cheap, but it's new and it's a little complicated and um, they just haven't quite wrapped their head around it. And again, this is one of those cases where um, it's not clearly anyone's job to build that market, right? So individual charging companies, they want to go talk to an employer and say, yes, you should buy our charger. Um, but the employer doesn't want to get five pitches from five different companies selling him something he didn't know he needed, right? Yeah. Um, so someone has to do the work of building that market where employers say, yes, of course, we're going to provide charging. Here's what we wanted to do based on that. Here's the three companies we want to solicit bids from, or here's the RFP we're going to put out, or whatever it might be, or we're just going to call our utility and ask them to do it for us. Um, and those business models haven't really been built out yet. Got it. That's interesting. That's an opportunity, I would guess. So um, pretty cool. All right, last question for you. And I know this is a 
you know, you, you, since you're a trade association with many members, um, this could be a tricky answer for you, but um, what companies are game changers? You know, we talked about the F-150 Lightning being a game changer. What companies that, uh, and when people think of EVs, they think of Tesla all the time. You mentioned it already. I probably mentioned it too. What, what's a game-changing company that maybe is a little under the radar that most people don't know about? Yeah, this is a tricky one because, of course, we love all of our members. Um, <laughs> but I can I can at least talk in, uh, you know, and I don't I don't want to give you know be seen as giving stock tips or anything like that by any mm -hmm. means. But um, but at least in general categories. So what like one thing I'd say is everybody talks about Tesla, um, and there are some pure play electric vehicle startups that have gotten a lot of attention and obviously huge amounts of money from SPACs and things like that. Uh, but I think we got to remember as the incumbent vehicle manufacturers get into this space, we need to not overlook them. So one example, I mentioned Daimler trucks, um, when Daimler trucks decided, yes, we're going to get into electrifying long haul trucks, um, that is a game changer. And they're doing the same thing with school buses through their Thomas built school bus yep. division. And there are a lot of advantages to being, I mean, making vehicles is a hard, expensive <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. Um, selling them and building that kind of brand awareness and comfort level where a FedEx or a UPS or a school district is going to be comfortable putting their kids or their product into your vehicle, that doesn't happen overnight, right? So right. I, I think I would be watching those companies like Daimler, like Ford, we mentioned um, some of those incumbents. Um, I think another cool space to watch is some of the charging solutions. And we talked a little bit about, um, about that. There's gonna be a lot more investment in charging. And you know, some of it is, yeah, we'll just install a charger. Some of the interesting things we're starting to see is more mobile charging. Right. Um, so basically batteries on wheels that you can roll around. So you don't have to worry about whether you have a charger at work because these folks will just tool by in the middle of the day and charge your car for you. And so you come out at the end of the day and the car is charged. Um, nice. There's a couple of companies doing that. You know, one is called Freewire. That's a member of ours. It's pretty interesting. Um, we're also going to see more uh, wireless charging and charging in motion. So again, wow. that's one where the technology sounds science fiction, but the technology is there. Uh, yeah. It's just business model and the economics that aren't quite there yet, but um, you will see some solutions where, at a minimum, uh, if you have a taxi stand, the cars can be charging as they're waiting in the taxi stand, and then you're going to see again. There's technology out there now. Would say as you drive down the freeway, you just go over these little charging nodes that top off your right. car as you're driving it. Um, so I think we will see more of that kind of innovation that integrates charging and probably solar panels into the roadbed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, those are very early stage now, but we've, we've seen a lot of these technologies like electric long haul trucks and electric, uh, transit buses that have gone from, yeah, that might be coming in 10 or 15 years to it's the new normal in two or three years. Right. That is fascinating stuff. Yeah, the solar, I've read about the solar roads a little bit. That's really, you know, that, that talk, I, I don't want to overuse the word game changer, but that's, that, that's mind blowing thinking about that, that you don't almost wouldn't need to worry about charging because the road you're driving on would do it for you. So. Yeah. And it's, um, 
what I love about those some of those solutions is again sometimes making the problem bigger makes it easier to solve, right? Yeah. So, what my wife is in local government, so I have a, a lot of conversations about cities and local government challenges. We all know our roads and bridges are crumbling, right? So if those roads and bridges could be generating electricity, they suddenly become revenue generating investments. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, it's more expensive to build them, but they're paying for themselves right. by providing these other services. Those kinds of things can really change the calculus in a hurry. Wow, that's really interesting stuff. All right. Um... Folks, you can learn more about Fourth on their website at fourthmobility.org and all the usual social media platforms. Um, Jeff Allen, thank you so much for your time. This was a really interesting conversation, I really and I really appreciate you being here. Great. Thanks for having me. It was fun. All right, folks. Um, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're watching or listening. It'll help us get the word out, and we'd really appreciate that. Uh, to learn more about HMH, the Transportation Transformation Agency, Visit us at hmhagency.com or all those usual social media platforms that I mentioned. For Jeff Allen, I'm John Halpin. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with a new episode of HMH's Future of Transportation podcast. Mm -hmm.